0: This podcast is supported by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need simple solutions to complex problems. I'm Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Today we're honoured to be interviewing guests as part of the Planning Institute of Australia Victorian Symposium. Our very first guest for the day is the Kemsley Orator for 2018. The Kemsley Oration honours Colonel Sir Alfred Newcombe, Kemsley, for his contribution to planning. During Sir Alfred's 60 year career and through his influence, town planning developed from a theory for the guidance of town growth to an established and widely accepted practice. He pioneered the broadening of the profession's scope to embrace strategic planning for recreation, conservation, economic, social, and other important aspects of civic life. Sir Alfred's service to town planning has been recognised by the Town and Country Planning Association, awarding him the Sir James Barrett Memorial Medal in 1964 and by the Planning Institute, electing him as an Honorary Fellow in 1980. This year, we're honoured to be joined by New South Wales MP, Prue Goward, who is the Member for Goulburn, Minister for Social Housing, Minister for the Prevention of Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, and Minister for Family and Community Services. Welcome to the show, Prue. Thank you, Jess. Now, did I get all of that right?
2: Yes, I know. It's a a long (laughs) list. It's a mouthful. But actually, they all go together, because uh, if you really want to tackle intergenerational poverty. You need the policy levers and domestic violence is a big contributor to poverty and child abuse and social housing as part of the remedy. So um, um, I like having them all together. There's a couple of other little levers I'd quite like to have under my <laughs> control, but that's um, the challenge of working in silos and you have to break that down in government.
0: Definitely. Now we have many interstate and international listeners. So for their benefit, can you please tell us a little bit about your electorate of Goulburn?
2: Well, Goulburn is a country electorate, um, so I'm a girl that started life in Adelaide, has mostly lived in cities. We've owned farms, but we've basically lived uh, in cities. And the joy of living in a regional community has been something I had n- never expected to happen. It's, it's about more than being able to park right out the front of the shop. It's about knowing everybody you see when you walk down the street. Uh, the kids are, are well looked after. You don't... I mean, the crime rate's very low in uh, a regional area like ours because, you know, the old lady will say, you know, don't pull, pull your socks up, stop doing that, or I'll tell your mother, mm. uh, which is what used to happen more broadly once in Australia. But um, Did your children grow up there as
0: well? No, no, no. no. I've
2: okay. only lived there for um uh, 12 years. What's so the population of Goulburn? It's about 10,000 people. Yeah.
0: Now, you started your career as a, as a journalist, I believe, then mm. you were a reporter, a, and then a political commentator with the ABC. What were the driving forces behind your decision to actually move into politics?
2: Well, I guess I'd observed politics for a long time as a journalist because I worked for a long time in Canberra. Um, I was sex discrimination commissioner for... Um, six years and that introduced me in a very direct way to public policy. I'd also worked in the Prime Minister's Department um, so I was fascinated by public policy I obviously enjoyed advocacy um, as a journalist, particularly uh, having your own show, I had a lot to do with um, the community of Canberra and so I liked working with people and listening to people and learning from people so really politics I thought was the sort of natural fit for me little did I know that It was much more complicated than just representing your community and being interested in policy. Lots of stakeholders you have to manage, lots of relationships, including in your own party. Uh, But, you know, I was to learn all of that and um, it's been, for me, a fascinating university of life. I bet.
1: Uh, Prue, how do governments speak plainly about difficult subjects? Talking about the public policy, I mean, we, we face a lot of challenging... Uh, question, society and lots of fronts. How do governments speak plainly on difficult subjects?
2: Well, there's two points there. One is how do governments speak plainly? And uh, it's very easy, and I notice this myself, even having been a broadcaster, you get infected with public sp- policy speak Uh, and it's quite impenetrable language, and you have to keep reminding yourself that the person listening to you wants to understand how it affects them, not in Globo. So you have to constantly remind yourself to break it down to, this is how your life is going to change, or this is how we want your life to change. But when the second part of the question was about difficult decisions, difficult policy areas, a a mistake that I think Liberal governments particularly keep making is we're very good at solutions. but we're very bad at actually telling people they've got a problem. So suddenly you come in with a bit of reform and the public's completely unprepared for it. They had no idea there was this problem. Um, So you get a whole lot of resistance and the reform then takes a lot longer to implement and you often have to modify it because you actually haven't had the debate about the problem. So I think one thing that governments probably always couldn't do better is scope the problem, uh, ensure that the public is with them on the journey, whether it's population policy, um, uh, pollution, uh, obesity, intergenerational advantage, start to build the case for why you need to change before you introduce the changes.
1: So so does that treat the electorate uh, in a mature way, do you think? Um,
2: I guess that's a way of putting it. I don't think it's not done because we don't respect the electorate. It's because you sort of get in, you're in your own world. You know, I see all the figures about intergenerational disadvantage. I see the, all the, st- the stories and the, um, the evidence about child poverty. I see what happens to children in foster care when they have 12, 13 homes. And then you decide you'll do something about it, but you just forget that. The public hasn't seen what you've seen. So it's just because you become so immersed in, and you're hungry, hungry to get on and with change. Um, and it's a, oh, it's a lesson I've, I've, I've not learned several times. I've made that same mistake of not preparing the public for the changes.
1: Is it sometimes overwhelming, Prue? I mean, you, you, you know, you've got some very sensitive portfolios. Mm. Is it sometimes overwhelming in the negative, some of the statistics you're seeing of problems out in society?
2: Well, uh, um, it's only
1: human to be overwhelmed like that. The
2: stats are overwhelming, I agree, but more overwhelming is when I have to read the case reports on what happens to children, how terribly adults treat children and how terrible people's lives are. Uh, People in public housing, the way they treat their houses, the way they can't manage their lives. Um, It's very confronting and I know that many people uh, get support so that they can keep doing it. I fortunately just had a terrific team around me and we can basically do a bit of downloading. Um, And you just have to keep it in perspective that that that's what should make you hungry for reform because you don't want to keep reading those reports because you know what they mean for people.
0: Mm. You were saying this morning in your oration um, or you were explaining about the need to um, provide independence to those people in that situation rather than just, you know, the Band-Aid approach, Mm. which is probably where we've been... In mm. the last few years, mm. how do you see that changing moving forward? Or how do we change that?
2: I mean, as William Pitt said, the aim of government is to make people's lives better. To do very little, very well. To keep, in other words, to keep out of people's lives where you can, uh, but to make their lives better. Uh, and living a life of welfare is not making people's lives better. It's 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 stopping them from sliding into homelessness and um, death and and early death. But it's not actually giving them uh, personal efficacy. I mean, surely the purpose of life is for us to live independent lives where we make our own decisions, we earn what we need to earn or what we want to earn, we spend it the way we want to spend it, and we do the things we need to do and want to do with our families and children. Um, So that's why economic independence is so important for women, uh, so important for uh, people from low-income groups, uh, that should be the purpose of social policy, to give people who start life without the advantage of independence the opportunity to be independent. Um, and uh, I guess that's that's where we need to be. But I think historically, welfare policy, which, you know, started with charities, really, um, Bernardo's and the old English charities, the churches had a lot of charity. It was really about sort of putting Band-Aids on terrible lives. But nobody ever said... How can we actually get this person from living in one of our little cottages on, you know, thin gruel and a basket of scones that we drop off to them? How can we get that person back on their feet, earning their own money living in their own house and living better than we can afford to provide to them? Uh, And I think for a long time, Australian governments both sides have not really asked that second question about giving people opportunity to change and have better lives. But I think that's where social policy is now headed and um, it's difficult. Uh, it's much more difficult than just putting Band-Aids on things, but um, it's where we need to be going.
0: You um, you mentioned a couple of really interesting examples which I wasn't previously aware of, and again, in your oration this morning, um, one of which was the fact that New South Wales is providing free TAFE to domestic violence victims... Um, for retraining. ..for retraining. That's, that's an amazing initiative. Well, is that's there... all
2: part of giving women, mostly women, uh, the opportunity to get back on their feet with, with skills that can make them part of the workforce. What,
0: what, what are your thoughts on... How do we get women back into housing? What's, what's, your, what's your policy position on that?
2: Uh, Well, we do, uh, we make homelessness a priority and obviously women with children a particular priority for public housing. Uh, Look, housing affordability in the private sector in Sydney is a nightmare um, because rents are very high and there's huge pressure on our housing resources. Um, But again, it all comes back to ensuring there are lots of opportunities for people even to leave Sydney. I mean, big, Country towns like Goulburn, have. Um, we have low unemployment. Uh, uh, Orange. There's any number. There's a ring of um, good, strong regional economies where people can live. So, it's, but it's a matter of giving people the opportunities uh, and uh, where they can live in decent housing. Um, but also, I think ensuring that they can do that independent of government. <music>
0: Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website.
1: Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. Talking just going on to uh, public trust in government, Um, it's been it's relatively low in Australia. Something like 35% of people trust the federal government to do the right thing, and it's been declining over many decades. In the states, it's slightly lower, but not that much lower. What do you? How do we get? How do we get public trust back in government? Do you think, or is it irreversible? Is it the trend irreversible?
2: I don't think it's, I don't think it's irreversible, and I, I think it's pretty basic. You, people will trust you if you tell the truth, if you say what you're going to do, why you're going to do it, um, that you take them with you on the journey. As I said, of understanding that there's an issue, and then you do what you say you're going to do. Um, the problem with politics is that politics has overwhelmed government often and people will say whatever they need to say to get elected and then hang the consequences when they don't deliver it. Uh, and that has had a very serious consequence because people remember what you said you'd do.
1: Is that part of the government making policy on the run to, for that election cycle or to gotcha moments against
2: the opposition? Or Yep, and I think particularly at the federal level where there's so much media focus, uh, you know, they all become media stars... Um, there's a much greater uh, tendency to sort of m- say something dramatic for the sake of, of getting on television, particularly when you're in opposition and you don't have as much to lose because you actually don't have to do it. Um, but I think that, yes, generally uh, there's there's that risk that um, people will make extravagant claims that they really can't deliver on. Uh, and. The first thing I learnt when we came to government was just how much more complicated everything is than it looks from outside.
1: Uh, there's lots of shades of grey, nothing so black and white.
2: Oh and process um, in government and accountability is so much greater than anybody can uh, in the private sector can Im- imagine and the checks and balances uh, to prevent corruption and uh, to ensure that um, process is followed and the taxpayers' dollar is properly... You know, the, the accountability measures make government very slow. Uh, and I sometimes think there are too many of them, but that's what happens. That's sort of an overreaction to governments behaving badly in the past, like, you know, we had Obede and people like that, so we've now got a whole lot of accountability measures which, unsurprisingly, make government even slower.
1: The few spoil it for the rest, typical. Mm. Um, Fake news, what's your take on it? I mean, you you were a Walkley award-winning journalist, um, the highest journalistic honour in Australia. What's your take on fake news and does it go to the broader sense of a mistrust of the media?
2: I'm never quite sure what fake news is. I mean, I'm sure President Trump means fake news is news that he doesn't agree with, (laughs) facts he doesn't like. (laughs) But, I mean, there is an element in the modern era of newspapers and media outlets having a very strong ideological position on an issue uh, and suppressing or uh, not publishing facts that don't suit the journalist's um, perceptions or the journalist's uh, angle or, or belief. Uh, And uh, I I get very frustrated by that. Um, You know, you see a a distorted piece of news reporting and you think, I I said nothing like that uh, and it's not what was meant and uh, they had no right to draw those inferences and turn this into a bit of a gotcha when it's actually a very genuine attempt. You know, those frustrations. But I think it's always been the case that journalists write differently to the way politicians would like them to write, that um, no story ever goes your way entirely. I was a journalist. Um, I got a lot of politicians angry very often uh, because I interpreted things in a way they didn't like. Um, And it's just part of the argy-bargy of free speech Mm. and uh, a free press, which is an absolutely vital component of a democracy.
1: We don't place enough emphasis on the fourth estate the, the journalist to not enough query
2: scrutiny. Mm. not
1: and to it's it's very important role to ask those difficult questions yep. and probe and not be just to take what's given
2: yes and, and ask true.
1: almost on behalf of the people it's, yeah, it's, it's like a counterbalance yeah
2: no, i think that's true um, but in my time as a journalist what I noticed was because of the uh, increasing competition for profit, uh, I was with the ABC so we were more immune from this, but I noticed that the increasing drive for profits and um, economies and the big the big newspapers and the big television groups meant that where once you had uh, researchers who could research stories for you or you only had to do one story a day, it ended up journalists writing 10, 12 stories a day. So they didn't have the time to do the research. And I think the emphasis on politics as distinct from policy is one of the prices we've paid for that That it's very I mean right doing politics was easy for a journalist it's very easy to do leadership challenges and just run around and speak to 10 people and find out which one of them would like to see a change in leader and I suspect they've helped foment this constant destabilization of the leadership at the federal level Um, much harder to do an insightful piece on a policy to understand the nuances of tax policy or child protection policy or social housing policy, whatever it is. Um, and it unsurprisingly, with the resources available to journalists, they don't do it.
0: Moving on slightly, you were a planning minister a couple of years ago. Mm. What were your initial impressions of this very large and complex um, area? Well, it, I was
2: first of all puzzled by why was so complicated because it seemed to me a pretty straightforward (laughs) thing to have to do that uh, you have to balance a whole lot Mm -hmm. of competing interests and come up with something that uh, a plan, whether it's permission to uh, allow a coal mine or a uh, a new suburb or where you would increase densities and things like that. So, at the outset, I thought, oh, well, this is pretty b- straightforward because all you have to do is balance competing interests and come up with something that sort of works. <laughs> and then I discovered that you were never going to get that balance <laughs> mm. and you would never please anybody. And you could easily be the most hated person in the cabinet. Mm. <laughs> yep,
0: that pretty so much. So, what sums looks it up. simple I actually turned <laughs> out to be
2: impossible.
1: Mm. Um, Pro-planners often get hot under the collar about ministers rejecting their advice. Uh, it, it's it's sort of said oh the, the minister's office has sent it back they they won't accept they won't accept the recommendation mm-hmm. now the, the planners obviously think that they know all the answers or are very wise but at the end of the day it's the minister who makes the tr-
2: decision what sort of things depends what it is. Yes, we've uh, got a lot of arms length decision making by the department. For example, the department uh, on a proposal for a coal mine, uh, it would be the department's report and advice to the planning independent planning commission that has nothing to do with the minister's office. That that has to be at arms length from us.
1: Have you have you overturned advice coming up to you as minister? And if so, what was the sort of, without the specifics, sorry, but why, what sort of thing made you, in your mind, think, no, I'm going to go a different way on this?
2: I don't know that I overturned advice. And uh, we have very strict rules. If a, gov- if a minister rejects advice, we've got to make it very clear why we've rejected it, again, because of the corruption uh, questions. But I've certainly questioned um, uh, people's views on, on a matter and um, where they were going. Uh, and I guess, in the end, uh, a minister has to take account of a, a bigger stakeholder group even than planners. Um, I say that your a planner's job is, you know, to balance competing interests and um, and views on the use of the environment and what have you. But uh, very much the minister's job is that in in spades, it's a much bigger problem. Uh, and um, and of course, the consequences, the flow-on effects, the uh, any precedents that it might create as well. So, uh, inevitably, there are political consequences of this. Uh, people uh, to a to a planner might seem to be the right thing to do. Uh, the minister might know is going to have incredible political repercussions. I mean, who would have guessed that removing some um, uh, Morton Bay fig trees from the side of a road to make way for a light rail? Uh, would have created the enormous backlash that it did in Sydney when we planned the light rail. Um, I would, I mean, if Morton Bay figs were, you know, an endangered species or something, I might have been less surprised. But um, it was the beauty of them and the fact that they'd always been there and it was a beautiful avenue that r- disturbed people. But that wasn't how planners saw it. And indeed, in the first instance, really how the, min- how the government saw it because they were intent on building a light rail. Um, So I guess feedback from the community is something we need to take account of in a way that a planner doesn't always have to.
0: Do you see a need for a national um, settlement strategy or a national growth plan for Australia?
2: I think there's something to be said for a national population policy. Uh, And I noticed that the federal government started talking about, well, we could place people in regional towns and not Melbourne and Sydney, because our infrastructure is like Melbourne's infrastructure, just groaning uh, under the weight of the huge numbers of people that come into Sydney every year. So I noticed that the government's sort of starting to talk about what we might call elements of a st- settlement strategy. In other words, what, are, what is our population target and where should it be? Uh, and I think we need to also take in account uh, of our environment. For example. The hinterland in the southeast corner, and indeed, you know, uh, southern Australia, is very dry, and it, I really do question how many more people we can carry much south of Sydney. When, once you go inland, and including uh, Victoria, north of Victoria, north of Melbourne, so I think water is going to be a constraint in certain parts of Australia too, not in other parts. Um, but whether or not that's something the federal government should Um, should own, as distinct from take leadership on, given that the state's constitutional responsibility is for land management, um, I think is a different question. To me, it really should be a partnership because the states have land use management, um, the feds control immigration, and in many senses, fertility policy, which are the two levers of uh, the drivers of population increase. and of course, we both, both state and federal have responsibilities for water management. So that would tend to suggest that it, we come to a collective view on what sort of settlement strategy and population and growth strategy we have. But I would be very disappointed if it was something that was imposed on the states by the federal government, because they don't have the levers, they don't have all the constitutional authority. and nor of course, does that mean they have the insights that a state government would have?
0: Mm, it's a partnership, isn't
1: it? Yeah. Where do you get your sources of information, apart from briefing notes? Um, what's, where's, where's your sources of information you are inspired by?
2: Well, every now and again, you do an overseas trip and you see what other countries are doing uh, and you come back and you think we could do that, we could modify what we're doing here or I could take that and modify it. And I've done that certainly with domestic violence policy, a very successful trip to the UK. Um, uh, cannabis policy, similarly. Um, but you also read things, you talk to people. I mean, there are amazing light bulb moments in people's heads. It can be just talking to your doctor and they say, well, I've never understood why we don't do this with cannabis. And you think, oh, I've never understood either. <laughs> um, so Everybody has ideas. Uh, you can't, I, I would never claim to be uh, an, a good originator of policy. It's not the way my mind works. But I think what I've learned is to listen well and draw ideas from other people and say, I, you have to be agnostic. You have to not have your own firmly held beliefs that we can do this and we can't do this. You have to start with what's possible. And when somebody comes up with a good idea or a new question, if you can't answer it, you have to be prepared to say to yourself, well, this is worth thinking about. What should we be doing here? Why is this not something we've solved? Or, I mean, it never occurred to me until uh, about a few years ago that, Here we were, the 13th largest economy in the world, and we had a growing number of people on welfare. Mm -hmm. And we should be a country with a declining number of people on welfare. You know, there's almost zero unemployment today. Why is anybody on welfare? Why? Because they come from generations of it. Why haven't we ever asked ourselves, how do we stop that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I'm sure some people have, but clearly not enough. So that was a new question for me. I mean, I'm in my 60s, and I only asked it in my 50s.
1: Mm. I, I'm reminded of that saying by, I think it's Premier Zheng or from China who opened up the markets to capitalism. He said, uh, it doesn't matter whether the cat's black or white, as long as it catches the mice. Mm. So it's that breaking free of ideology, do you think?
2: Yeah. Yes, well, I have, I call it the disease of ideology. Um, I, I think um, you, you cannot be an effective government If you are held back by fixed ideas. You have to be flexible, you have to be pragmatic. The only ideology you have is the commitment to serving your people and making their lives better and then you work back from that so how do you do this it's it's difficult and you're going to make mistakes but um, to only believe that you can do certain things because you're you know you believe in trade unions or you don't or you believe in free markets and you don't believe in any form of regulation at all is crazy you have to start with where do we want to end up what do we want our country or our state to look like how can we make that better and then work back
0: so per, um just wanted to talk to you briefly about social housing, um, that being one of your portfolios. What do you see as being the greatest challenge in increasing and and improving the housing stock in New South Wales and what lessons can we in Victoria take away?
2: We've got the largest social housing building program in Australia and we've been able to commence this because although Uh, overcrowding in Sydney and um, overpopulation and all those pressures and the cost of housing is very difficult for some people. What it's meant for us as a government with traditionally very uh, large inner-city land holdings is we have very valuable assets so we are now recycling those assets by redeveloping sites that hold 300 people into sites that hold 2,000 people, Um, whole built communities uh, where you can have a school, you can have a childcare centre, you can have some work opportunities, close to public transport, close to major roads, uh, with some open space. And we can do that with developers at very little cost to government because we allow the developers to have 70% of the uplift for for private ownership or private investors. And then we use the 30% for a mixture of public and a little bit of affordable housing. Now, I know uh, Victoria has a 90-10, but in our experience, the research shows that people in social housing do better when the mix is 70-30, not 90-10. So we don't make as much money from it, as say Victoria would, uh, but we have more public housing coming out of it. Uh, And in our experience, and what you can see from the research is that uh, social housing families do better when they're when they're living next door to families where dad does go to work, mm. and there aren't drug dealings during the night, uh, there's no domestic violence, uh, and you know, people have functional lives mm. because what we've all learnt from the terrible, terrible estates including high-rise estates, as we've got in Melbourne as well as Sydney, um, public housing, is that uh, it just compounds disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And to have little kids watching people dealing drugs in their corridors and in the back lanes behind their building to meet old people who won't go out of their of their houses uh, other than to do the shopping because they're too frightened of the druggies and um, the violence. Uh, to have people with mental illness not being managed in public housing and terrorising people on their floor, that's no way for people to live. And um, that means that not only... Is the Communities Plus program, which is this um, redevelopment of existing public housing land, a good economic policy because it enables us to house more people and create and increase the number of public housing properties? It's also much, much better social policy.
1: In terms of the role of think tanks, um, think tanks contribute to the public discourse. Universities have in the past, but seem to be less so. Um, how healthy is the Planning Commons into well, or the public policy Commons if you like the people putting input in and from a whole lot of different fields
2: I think sometimes I think there's still too much ideology that everybody goes to their corners and um, uh, you only get research that suits the beliefs of the researchers uh, there's not the agnosticism in public debate, I often think there should be, uh, where you're actually just sort of dealing with the facts, the the data, um, and working out, you know, what would be the best way to manage the problem and respond to the problem. Um, Yeah, I am very disappointed generally in the level of public policy debate in Australia. I think the institutes, uh, most of them don't get much beyond um, sort of general grand statements about philosophy. Uh, the Grattan Institute, which is m- interested in the detail of public policy, is probably one of the few exceptions. Um, so I, I don't even bother reading most of the stuff that comes out of the What public would be policy your Institute. message to those
1: people?
2: Get into the detail, boys and girls. Mm. We want you to give us ideas about how we can make people's lives better. I do not need or want to read lectures about sort of broad political criticism. Um, We know our problems. Um, What I I need to hear from public institutes about is their ideas for how we can fix policy. Not at a grand philosophical level, because that doesn't help me much either. I'd like to hear some detail about how you think these programs could work better. Do you know that there is no centralised or even statewide way of evaluating social policy in in Australia. We haven't got a Washington Institute. Uh, I'd love to see uh, some of these private institutes, like the Grattan, doing much more of that work. Um, We need people who will uh, rigorously evaluate programs with with reliability. I mean, when I first became a minister, I read evaluations of programs that basically were satisfaction surveys. Uh, That's not good enough. You're not going to spend millions of dollars on a program just to know that the parents felt... Um, that they um, were more confident in dealing with their children. I'd, I want to see whether it changes rates of taking children into care. Um, so, yeah, I would love to see the uh, policy institutes really lift, the, lift their game. More rigour, more vigour, more interest in the detail of policy um, and, um, yeah, more research.
0: Okay, so we're just going to finish up now. We wanted to just ask you, how do you relax and unwind (laughs) after all of this?
2: (laughs) Um, I don't really like relaxing and unwinding. (laughs) I quite like being keyed up and thinking. Um, I get, I suspect I get a little bit sad when I relax because I get, I brood a bit, which is, um, yeah, just think too much. Um, But I love gardening. Um, I I love having people around to dinner. I love, love being laughing. Uh, I love music. I love um, going out. So I like to have a good time, but um, I've never really thought of relaxing as something I wanted to do.
1: Well, thank you very much, Prue. It's been a wonderful uh, discussion, and uh, you've carried on from that marvellous speech you gave before. Before we finish, Jess, have you got any recommendations? Have I? Yes, to our listeners. Something that's caught your mind, caught your interest lately... Okay, oh, Well, Jess is thinking, I've recently seen some videos put out by Bayside City Council uh, explaining how the process, planning process works. The, the videos are so informative. They're not condescending. They're very plain speaking, Pro, and uh, they're, they're a delight. So I would urge all uh, communicators in government to have a look at this video series on Bayside City Council. So you'll find that at www.bayside.com dot dot gov dot au and look at planning so i compliment them and we might even interview them at some stage jess
0: actually i do have a podcast recommendation uh 99 invisible which i'm sure many of our listeners are um are familiar with but a fantastic podcast about balmer which is a social housing estate um outside of amsterdam very very interesting um and i would highly recommend
1: good on you jess thanks very much Prue. thank you jess thank,
0: thank you, you.